Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. We are live. Uh, welcome, everyone. I need to shut down real quick. I have a echo coming through on my part. I just had to cancel that real quick. Uh, it is uh, today. Gosh, what is it here already? We're already at Wednesday, uh, September the 13th. Is that right already, Matt? I mean, just... I'm losing track of the days. They're all kind of <laughs> blending into each other. But yeah, yeah, my computer says... No, Tuesday the 13th. Tuesday the 13th. There we go. There we go. Right, right. Yeah, this uh, already this month is already up and flying. B yeah. will be here with us here shortly, but uh, welcome uh, all the listeners that are tuning in. Uh, we are uh, putting on YouTube for the first few minutes before we jump over to our Twitch channel. Uh, so welcome, everyone. Uh, it is that time of the week again for The Great Game with Matthew Arrett. Uh, do me a favor, jump over to his site, uh, one that the Canadian Patriot dot uh, org so uh, jump over there many of you are already very familiar with it i see a lot of the articles posted over in our discord channel also supporters that work over at the rising tide foundation.net uh you know great seminars that they host on a weekly basis on on sundays and then also uh matt's substack channel so uh matt great day how are you sir i'm doing good i'm doing really good a lot going on i know we missed last week so um well you were busy you were really busy so it was no, yeah. no, no big deal. Sometimes you yeah. got to you got to take care of things. So no big deal. All right. All right. Well, yeah, there's definitely a lot to talk about. That's for sure. Um, I figured today what we would do is sort of like like we were discussing, you know, before the show, um, break down the, a little bit of the, the, the insanity in Europe, um, especially around, you know, in the last week ago, the queen died. Um, now we got a new king, Charles the third. So I figured we just like poke some holes in that weird um, hereditary structure and, and the type <laughs> of yeah weird intellectual meshing that it seems to have, have spread, especially amongst a lot of the anti-Great Reset conservative class. I found a very strange reaction, not only to the death of the queen and the rise of, or the, you know, the uh, induction of, of, is that the word for it? Induction? Inject, of, induction, yep. Um, as the new king, but. There's been a crazy uh, tendency amongst a lot of the what I thought were the more saner voices amongst the conservative groups to not only pay ass licking lip service to the queen as this like great figure of stability, uh, dignity and, and stature, but also the British Empire. And he had Tucker Carlson. Just it was uh, weird. Yeah, it was really weird. And he didn't just stop it because I understand it. If you don't you know, you, you're against the idea of destroying monuments uh, you know, launched by a bunch of anti, um, anti-human critical race theory victims who just want to break down everything that they that smells of injustice of the past. I get it. You want to like, you know, uh, not do that. So that's fine. But then Tucker went so far as to say that the greatest thing to ever happen to Africa and India was the British Empire. Wow. That yeah. I just total fail. 
<laughs> I mean, yeah, total, total fail. And I was wondering where he was getting his talking points from. I'm like, okay, where, where is this coming from? Like, it was just way out of left field. I anticipated him covering a little bit, but he did. I think it, for two, two different nights, I think he went on. I think he was watching uh, some of the social uh, feeds and seeing how people were just like, just, you know, go, you know, rallying against the, the, the queen and saying, you know, good riddance, the queen is dead, the queen is dead. And he goes on this uh, entire monologue about basically worshiping um, the, the queen and everything about the, the empire. <laughs> yeah, it's like just because social justice idiots hate something doesn't mean that thing is good. Uh, you know, <laughs> a broken clock can be right twice, twice a day. And um, yeah, and then you have like Paul Joseph Watson as well, who's done some pretty viciously good commentary, uh, you know, against the Great Reset, against ironically hereditary structures of power. And he even did a little thing where he said, the British Empire was the greatest thing to happen to all human history. Um, you know, and then, you know, you got also Jordan Peterson. Obviously, that's not a huge surprise, although he's typically, you know, a bit a bit more of what you'd consider a Republican Canadian. Um, but even he went on a complete tirade saying anybody who, um, anyone who believes that the, the monarchy should be absolved in Canada, or not absolved, but, you know, um, ended in Canada, is a is a idiotic idiotic nitwit with no respect for traditions and it's like here you are somebody jordan peterson who's a friend to the u.s revolution you've said so much that you are uh, that you believe america is the greatest bastion of creativity and goodness and uh, you've said all of these nice things but you've just revealed that if it were 1776 right now and you were living in new england and in, in in the 13 colonies you would be trying to stop the American Revolution from happening. You think everybody should just kiss the ass of King George? Exactly. You nailed it. You nailed it. That is so true. Like, and that's what the point. I was like, are, am I missing something here? Oh man, all these guys, right? Like, these are the and the, the tragedy in my mind is like these are the best, sanest voices of of America right now who need to be like the shapers of something good. Like there's nothing, they're not Malthusian. They're not technocratic. They're not into transhumanism. They're not into world government. There is a sense of nationalism that is an or a positive organizing force, despite it being super confused and to be so wrong on something so fundamental. Like, why do you have, what is the monarchy? What is the British empire? Mm -hmm. And I figured, yeah, today what we could do is just go through a bit of what, what Charles represents. And I know you had a little video that you wanted to, uh, to chuckle at, Yes, yeah, I want to share this with our our audience because it was just it was just too fun. Um, it's too fun not to share it. So let's. Well, this is actually Charles pray. speaking. This is actually Charles giving his uh, his address. <laughs> All right, here we go. Yeah. Oh, there's no. I'm gonna rewind it. Here's the audio. Edition, God's gift to the earth, and now your new. Okay, I'm rewinding it for everyone. There we go. Yeah, okay. And die in the cold. I, Sir King Charles III Esquire, Majestic Crown Wearing Limited Gold Edition, God's Gift to the Earth, am now your new ruler, and all you peasants must eat the bugs, shut off the heat in your home, and die in the cold in your smart apartment to fight climate change this winter. I know all of you NPCs are crying over my mother, someone you didn't even know, and the closest any of you got to knowing the real her was if you were brought into our humble abode to be cannibalized. But we stopped doing that a while ago, for health reasons. It still amazes me that even though I am a descendant of Vlad the Impaler, you mindless zombies defending the crown like you just had a full course meal of slavery, and you went back to the buffet table of your own will, and took seconds, thirds, and fourths, 
you're all Olympic gold medalists in mental gymnastics to somehow come to the conclusion, and believe me when I tell you that we are in service to you. Okay, is the broadcast over? How did I do for my first time? <laughs> Shut the fuck up, you stun cunt. You're... Okay, sorry, sorry. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was, that was, so yeah. Oh, that's, that's awesome. That's, that's awesome. A, I wish we could be a see at some point, so. <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully that doesn't get, we're still on YouTube, right? So No, it's down. Get... It's off. It's gone. Oh, okay. Yep. I, I killed it before the, the, uh, about first, like 10, 15 seconds of that, because I know YouTube and they've already up their terms and conditions of policies about the election cycle coming up and everything. So. And everything's right. going to be fact checked from here going forward, Matthew. <laughs> right. I was not thinking strategically on that point. Uh, no, no, yeah. it's all good. It's all good. Well, <laughs> so, and, and, yeah. it's a, and it's a great topic because I, you know, they're, you know, not, and I read your mm -hmm. article over the strategic culture, culture in regards to the Great Britain from feudalism or will King Charles great reset go unchallenged? So mm -hmm. you want to break this down and jump into this a little bit for us? Yeah. Yeah. Let's do that. So um, a lot of people tend to think of Charles um, as a bit of a dimwit. You know, somebody who just pours money into um, new types of technologies that capture cow farts, which he does, or talks to plants and really believes that they talk back to him, which he does. Um, but there's something else bubbling, you know, under the surface. And I, I did a, a little presentation for uh, the coronavirus uh, investigative committee this week uh, going through some of this. But in that article, the, the, the point that I try to get across that. Charles himself, being a dimwit, does have handlers, and those handlers do have a vision, a grand strategy of what they want to accomplish with the current blowout of the financial system that they themselves initiated. And when I say they here, and when I talk about handlers, of course, I'm talking about the actual oligarchical system, which has a direct continuity going back a very long time. And I'm, I'm talking here centuries, if not millennia, and, and their, their network of, of managers, of, of certain strategists, grand strategists, upper level managers that are installed as courtiers that are installed in things like the Privy Council offices, both embedded as the, you know, the controlling vector uh, Privy Council system in Britain itself, but also with their branches in Australia, in Canada, with the Canadian Privy Council office of which Charles has been inducted as the head since 2014. Um, and also within different uh, interconnected think tanks embedded like little um, viruses within the United States. Of course, things like the Council on Foreign Relations, anybody who thinks of that as being an American institution has got to look a little bit more at their, at their history because the reality is it was, it is, its pedigree is 100% British. It is the British branch of Chatham House in the United States that was set up in 1919 and that has been a coordinating body ever since for the past century in reconquering from within the United States using different nests of road scholars who are passed, you know, who basically create structures that they then pass on generation to generation. Um, Fabian society, um, sociopaths as well are often embedded and interface very closely with these things. So Charles himself is trying to usher in or believes that it is his role as an eco-warrior crusader of sorts um in or with the mandate and you could just see this from the past 40 years of his political activism he's an activist king who wants to retool and reform humanity under the idealized image that he has in his mind and that he's been given since he was a child of a world of mind slaves who are obedient good serfs 
who desire their shackles, who desire eating things like bugs, not owning things and being happy. And really, when you look at his involvement with things like the World Economic Forum, again, going back to the 1970s, oh, and yeah. his father, Prince mm -hmm. Prince Philip, who's a, you know, a co-founder of the World Wildlife Fund for Nature that helped reorganize the entire ethos of humanity around being one of saving humanity from empire in the 60s to becoming saving nature from humanity, which was the whole point of the World Economic Forum, not really, uh, sorry, the, the World Wildlife Fund, which was never about saving nature or saving pandas. Um, it was really about stopping development and creating a new logic that would prevent or that could be used to justify why Africa or India or other poor countries or even developed countries should not continue a policy of wanting technological development or infrastructure, which we're always going to be then seen as bad for the environment. Hey, it's V. Hey, V. Slava Kokena, gentlemen. Slava Kokena. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that's v, the, uh, welcome. The, Perfect the timing. Free, uh, patriotism. <laughs> What did I miss? What did I miss? We're talking. We're talking about the, the the new king, King Charles V. King Charles. Did you see the picture of him with, with his hands folded and his ring, like his little like pork sausage hands, and his hands were so swollen that his ring was like turning his finger purple. Did you see that? Oh yeah, no, oh, I yeah. didn't see that. One. I'll see if I can bring <laughs> it up. But uh, yeah, please do. Yeah, <laughs> I saw a little cartoon um, of because uh, you know the. There's a, a book called Dope Inc. that EIR published back in the 70s. Yeah. And um, it basically... I remember that. Dope great Inc. Book. Yeah. Great book. And it basically demonstrated thoroughly how the city of London and the crown as an institution is the organizing center of global narcotics and has been since the opium wars. Bingo. Of the 19th century. It's a really right. great book. And it goes through how the interconnectedness of the various Wall Street banks, Canadian banks like Scotiabank and the offshore Cayman Islands, the whole thing. And how it's all being organized again through British intelligence, the city of London. There um, it is. CJ brought it up. Oh, there it is. That's look really at his hands. That can't be him. No, it is him. Yeah, How do you they know say that? it's uh, uh, he has a medical condition and what? You know, people... Yeah, apparently. No. Yeah. yeah, that's his fingers. They look like like Vienna sausages. Oh my god! See, See there it is. The... Yeah, that's actually him, eh? Yeah. Yep. Wow, King Charles. Is it also weird that his pinky is longer than his his ring finger? Well, he's an inbred. Uh, you know. <laughs> this is perfect DNA. Yeah. <laughs> genetics. He's an inbred psychopath. Well, that's the thing, right? I mean, people are actually treating this like it's a normal thing, including we were talking just before you got on V about how a lot of American, um, like seemingly seen American conservatives, are even just completely uh, gushing over the importance of the British and the. The British Empire Sickening. as a hereditary institution, as if it's somehow some beastian of, of dignity and stability and grandeur. Um, oh, hold on, someone's calling me here. Let me just uh, decline that. Okay, sorry. Um, <clears throat> so the uh, the reality is that these are inbred hereditary structures that have a very shallow, shallow gene pool. Um, the Queen yep. was married to her cousin. They have the same grandmother, um, Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip. And you've got they were some, related, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were related, yeah. Same grandmother. They had the same, you know, when they went to found reunions. Yeah, they they got to yeah <laughs> see each other when they were kids. Um, but all of these, all of these royals, that's how they do it. Um, and it and it's it's a sick idea that they've tried to normalize, and somehow people drank the Kool Aid, or a lot of people have drank the Kool Aid. Um, but the fact is, yeah, you don't get when you have a shallow gene pool. We know scientifically it creates all sorts of um, disorders. We, we've seen that not only with animals, 
with these poor pugs and stuff that live on the average of the age of like eight years old or various dogs that are just like inbred for the sake of human um, enjoyment and entertainment. But yeah. they're atrocities of nature, these poor things. You know, they live in like, like the English bulldog. Right. Is that the one that has to have a cesarean session just section just, just to give birth? They yeah. can't breathe. Yeah. They're a walking vet bill. They're 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 nothing. Yeah, uh, they're, they're the farthest thing removed from the traditional old school bulldog. And if you want to see the old school bulldog in its original state, you got to come to the United States. You head down to the south. You got what's known as American bulldog, especially the Scots line. American bulldogs are your classic bulldog. From back in the 17th century and stuff like that. That's that's your classic yeah, bulldog. Yeah. But the British one is an aberration. It's some sort of anomaly created by crossing with pugs. It's horrible. Yeah, and that's what they've done to their own humans, their own their own wannabe leaders. Well, Charles <laughs> kind of does look like a pug with his swollen fingers. I don't want to take a cheap shot, but yeah, I mean that there's I that, I wouldn't disagree with that. Uh, but the the thing that's really dangerous about this this um very low level IQ'd um inbred um, fool, and he is a fool, is that he has delusions of grandeur. He thinks he's the best. He thinks he's really the this great genius who is a uh, somebody who can comment authoritatively about architecture, science, uh, global warming. He's a global warming expert. He's a business expert. He's organized the Rothschilds around the, the Council for Inclusive Capitalism, which is integrated with the Vatican in order to create a new type of green business model um, as part as far as the the whole green revolution is concerned and um charles himself is also the guy who was selected to inaugurate or to announce back in june 3rd of 2020 which i go through in my article that that cj had up um the great reset it wasn't klaus Schwab, it wasn't bill gates it was charles who was the yeah, one heard about to inaugurate this thing um at davos what happened why, why didn't he why didn't he what uh, uh, like uh, inaugurate and announce the uh, the Great Reset, and it was Schwab instead. No, it wasn't Schwab. I'm saying that it, you would think it would have been Schwab who would have announced the Great Reset. Oh, oh okay. fact, they had selected Charles to be the one to do it. Um, and so you know, Charles himself, they're they're sort of they need when, when I talked about his handlers, his courtiers, the the people who um, are are pumping up and flattering his ego and and giving him a bit of a god complex, which they've done since he was probably, you know, in his teens to, to carry out a certain mission, it is because they, there, there's a whole organizing force around uh, different parts of the world. And this is the, the, the nature of the globally extended British deep state is that they need the institution of the crown to be perceived, not only to be um, a, a force of power, but also in their own shadow government structures, both in the Masonic world if you look at things like the order, the Knights of the Order of Both, different key Masonic lodge networks that have the monarch as the head of the institution, um, as well as you know things like the Privy Council offices um, in various parts of the Commonwealth. And the Commonwealth, by the way, is the British Empire. I and mean, people look can just look at the map of the British Empire of the 1920s and look at the Commonwealth that was created in the 1930s and just see it's the exact same territory. It's the same nations pretty much. 21% of the global land surface area is the Commonwealth, just like it was with the British Empire. It operates pretty much the same way through its offshore Cayman Islands, offshore banking, the choke point controls of maritime shipping, sim very similar today, which is how you're able to control a very complex, vast global system by only having a limited amount of, of controlling nodes. So that's how the, the empire worked then. That's how it works now as more of um, a, th a thing behind the scenes. 
But the crown itself is the thing which is the fount of all honors. And that is the legal term given in the British system for the crown as an institution, independent of what who, who's ever, you know, sitting there at one moment in time. And that hereditary thing is the source. Because the, the question is like, where does the authority for law emanate? In the case of an American constitutional system, it's clear. It, it emanates from the consent of the governed, right? That's where a Republican system of governance finds the authority for law, is we give consent to representatives who we elect from ourselves, not hereditary powers of houses of lords or anything like that, or knights or, or what have you. So, and from there, the consent of the governed gives the meaning and power to the law that is then put into motion, um, at which point we can, as a people, organize elections um, for every branch of government, Senate, as well as, rep, you know, the House of Representatives, as well as the, the president itself. Um, if they're not doing their jobs properly, you can even go so far as to organize impeachment processes. you got a whole deliberative process in the Republican forms of government, whereas in the British one, the fount of all honors is where all authority emanates. The crown is the fount. And um, the idea is you have one sovereign. You don't have a you don't have the sovereignty of a people or the sovereignty of a nation, because how could you have that if you only have one sovereign? What is everybody else? They're not sovereign. They're the ones who receive the um, the benefits of the crown's pleasure or displeasure by having rights extended to or taken away from those talking cows. That's the way the the logic of empire functions in all of its manifestations. So Prince Charles is being set up as this more active king, even though he's come out with a public comment this week saying, oh, no, I'm going to take a step back and be a more symbolic figure. We know that that's not true. That That's just for public consumption. It's only very symbolic, you see, Matthew. Uh, until it comes to the land and the holding of land and treasure within the kingdom, then I should be very hands-on. Yes, and that is exactly what he's inherited. When you And I go through this in my article. If you actually look at what this kid, who's, I mean, this this... 70-year-old boy has just had the happiest day of his life discovering that his mom died finally because um, he's been waiting for this for decades. He just inherited, the. he became the world's biggest landowner in the first part, and that's the highlighted section. 6.6 6 billion acres of land are now owned by the crown, or Charles is the nominal head, including Australia, New Zealand, most of Northern Ireland, most of Canada. That's, I think, 90% of Canada is crown land. Only 10% is not crown land. Great Britain and the Falkland Islands which they pretty much stole from us, uh, uh, Argentina. Um, so that's 6.6 .6 billion. That's way miles ahead of, I think it was King Jordan or something, who's the next biggest world land owner at like maybe 5% of that type of surface area. Um, then you got crown corporations. So like the Bank of Canada, it's a crown corporation. Um, in every Commonwealth country, you got crown corporations. It's typically mm, legally just, owned by the not crown. forget, Matthew, the, the mineral rights to those land also belongs to me as well as the resource rights to those land, which is we're talking about tens of trillions of dollars in wealth. Oh, yes, yes. But and, I'm just a figurehead. And this is where you, I think, get the greatest uh, potential for revolutionary fervor within within Britain, uh, because the Crown Estate is, kept, is, is a weird organization that is one of the biggest uh, property owners of castles, lands, farmlands, um, and also offshore lands or waters, all around UK, it's all Crown Estate controlled. Now, the Crown Estate is partially, it's not t legally owned by the Crown, though it's called the Crown Estate, but 
and and some of its revenue that it gets from his land holdings, rents, and other things goes to the public coffers to pay for administrative, you know, over overhead costs of maintaining a state. But twenty five percent of that goes straight into the crown purse to pay for Charles's living expenses and other things. So you got this weird thing now. What is the crown estate? It owns up to two hundred miles off of the coast, all around the UK, is all crown estate uh, seabed. So any of the windmill farm companies that are getting subsidies from the government as part of the green energy transition, part of the global green new deal, have to um, pay the crown estate for rights to use the land and then continuously pay royalties to the crown estate. Now, what's what's one of, of the many incompetent aspects of Britain's energy crisis? And I mean, this thing is going to get so much worse and it's already bad as the winter rolls around. It's not just the cutoff of Russian gas, the false artificial scarcity. But it's also, or it's not even just the shutdown of hydrocarbon um, energy um, fuel sources, which is also a big uh, issue, but it's the fact that 25% of England's or the UK energy sources come from windmill energy, which when it's not windy, and that's off very often, it goes down to less than 1% capacity. And this is all over the, 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 the seabeds. I mean, most of the windmills and from my research, are directly controlled by Crown Estate. So they're killing their own people by creating false energy on so a, a false energy scarcity issue on so many so many levels. And Charles is the direct beneficiary and overseer of this. Um, and like I said, he's the he's the guy who is t being given credit, and he's happy to take that credit for the Great Reset, the idea of reducing fertilizer use, the idea of capturing farts from cows. That's a little quote directly from his Twitter channel um, where he said, as we move from rescue to recovery, we have a unique but rapidly shrinking window of opportunity to learn the lessons and reset ourselves on a more sustainable path. It is an opportunity we have never had before and may never have again. We must use all the levers. When he's talking about capturing recapturing farts from cows was he referring to camilla parker bulls or ah, figurative or literal bovine uh maybe a bit of both maybe yeah, a bit of both. well you know it yeah i mean he's this guy is such a freak he's, he's a, a genius he's an absolute genius he wants to be a, a, a did you hear about his i want to be a, your tampon disgusting <laughs> uh remarks to to camilla what I think he was like still cheating with uh, with Camilla against uh, Diana or something. But Why are they, that's he, so disgusting. Yeah, he was actually saying there was like a leaked phone call saying that he wants to be a, a tampon. I want to uh, be a I want to be a tampon. No, that's the that's that's the the people that are being set up as the actual like overseers of the new world. We're going to rule the world, you and I, Camilla. We're going to rule the world. I want to be a tampon. Oh, they're so detached. It's gross. It's it's disgusting. And, and again, the obsession with blood with these people is is incredible to me. Yeah, no, absolutely. Sick. But but then of course, and you know, we're not even going into the the obvious stuff that people I'm sure have all looked at, which is like the Jimmy Seville. Um, he was Matthew. a good man, Matthew Jimmy good Savile. Man. Yeah, knight uh, of the knight of the British Empire and uh, rabid pedophile. I mean. Something like 500 plus cases uh, have accumulated of cases of pedophilia of Jimmy Seville, who was in charge of managing networks of child ritualistic um, sex rings that were um, uh, enjoyed by high level members of British Parliament, the British House of Lords, 
Um, these were organizations protected directly by Margaret Thatcher. I mean, Seville is like a mentor of Charles. He's a close buddy of Prince Philip. Like all of these guys are into something really nefarious. It's disgusting. Knighted, knighted by the queen for good works to the empire is uh, yeah. like you're dealing with something really, really sick, even beyond Epstein, Epstein level stuff here. Who, by the way, Ep Epstein, for those who don't know, um, is also integrated into this process, especially via vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell. Yep. And her dad, who was a, a, a basically a crown agent, for lack of a better term. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so you got this this very interconnected thing. So Charles is entering this this process. He is an activist king. He is an eco crusader. Except instead of, instead of the crusades against the Muslim world that, that were organized by Venice to destroy any potential ecumenical alliance and cooperation between cultures back in the I mean we're talking here like the 11th century all the way to the 13th century had a series of these insane crusading wars. The new type of crusading war is against carbon dioxide, against sunlight, against um, infrastructure that allows for the desalination and abundance of water. These are the things that are being like targeted as the enemies of the world, of Gaia and humanity that have to be that he wants to lead the charge in, in opposition to. So this is what I think is um, it's very important to have that that dystopic contrast because on the one side that's what's taking control of the Biden Biden administration. That's what's currently. I mean the Rand. Corporation just produced a report this week that, or actually it was a, a report that they published in uh, January 25th, 2022. And it was just leaked this week and it was circulated uh, to the CIA, the State Department. And this Rancor paper is really interesting because it essentially calls for um, uh, basically saving the collapsing U.S. They recognize that Biden might be impeached come the new uh, wave of elections in uh, November. They're like, that has to be stopped at all costs. The U.S. economy is, they, they're very, very clear that it's going to collapse unless they can extract a massive amount of uh, wealth from specifically Europe and Germany um, that they directly targeted in the Rancorp report, making the point as well that one of the greatest threats to the salvation of the U.S. and the extraction of that uh, those resources needed for the U.S. banking system is a dangerous return to um, nationalism of Germany that could that might at some point find a way of breaking free of influence by the U.S. and the Five Eyes. Um, now it's not the U.S. talking. What's talking here is actually the 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 British oligarchy with their appendices, uh, their their different um, managers, the Rhodes Scholars who are nested all around Biden, who are actually talking. It's an Anglo-American system that wants to come out on top in the New World Order. And Germany, France, other countries are told that they have to sacrifice themselves on the altar to make this happen. And in the Rand Report, again, January, they're writing this. They go through the importance of having a bunch of, um, well, basically, they're saying we have to find a way to uh, destroy Germany's economy. So that they don't, they're not able to stand on their own two feet. The best way to do that is to cut them off of the infinite supplies of Russian uh, cheap oil and gas, which they say could only be done if we can initiate a war with Ukraine. Um, that would then pit Germany against you, uh, Russia. They do the same thing for uh, France, saying that you know we have to cut off France's access to uranium um, resources coming from Russia. Which again, they, they they it's a very very candid sociopathic document. 
But the whole thing, what you see, and I, and I think it's important to look at it this way, is not that it's the U.S. versus Germany. It's not even Britain. Try, and they actually, actually say, too, the Brexit is a big problem because it it gave the um, the U.S. the a loss of capacity to uh, pressure Europe as one unit into a, a certain direction. Now, these are these are fights that are happening, but what you're seeing is panic, 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 because the oligarchy had this very clear, clean idea of what the new world order was supposed to look like with the, the uh, controlled demolition of their economy or of the, the once viable Western economy that used to produce things. That's now a bubble. And I'm going to show a Glaziev speech in a second. Um, and, and the idea was to then have, you know, a very clean depopulated transhumanist world government on top. And now what you're finding is because Russia, China, increasingly India, and many other nations are not playing along. People like Sergei Glaziev have been assigned to advance a new alternative security and especially financial architecture, which is moving very fast, even though it hasn't really quite taken full hold yet. That's based upon different principles of banking, cooperation than anything we live under. Um, they're they're panicking. And now what you have are a bunch of backstabbers trying to figure out how they're going to be in um, the, uh, the dominant position within this defunct design for a great reset world order. And they're just fighting each other, stabbing each other in the back. And it's very similar to what we saw in World War, uh, before World War II in the 1930s, when, you know, the, it was very clear that, you know, the, the entire British governing class was backing fascism, backing uh, the growth of Nazi, Nazi Germany, Mussolini, just like their American fascist counterparts in the United States who were trying to run a coup to kill Roosevelt and bring the U.S. into a pro-Nazi, pro-fascist communion with Britain, with the French Vichy, um, fascist regimes with Franco's fascism in Spain, with Belgium who had integrated with <laughs> Germany. All of the point was at that point to just, you know, turn Russia and China into slave colonies, undo the U.S. Constitution, institute a new type of system of global transhumanist governance to reduce the world population under a eugenics religion of pseudoscience. That was the objective. And then what we saw was that their idea, their clean, perfect ivory tower idea of how this was supposed to look like blew up in their face because reality is always messier than mathematical models. And they discovered that when Hitler was like, wait a minute, I've got all of this like power economically and militarily. Why don't I just take a more governing role in the new world order and have the British empire as my second in command, junior partners, they can manage, yeah. you know? Um, and frankly, a lot of British, like the queen's, um, uncle, uh, Edward VIII was more than happy to be the Nazi king, he even wrote letters throughout World War II. Oh, right? he loved Hitler, man. Yeah, he was like, please, just bomb bomb the civilians of Britain more. Just break them. They're almost ready to break and accept me back <laughs> as the, the Nazi king. Just do it a little bit more. Just He's do not... it more, and then I shall make my triumphal return. We can get rid of Parliament, subjugate oh. that, that wretch of a man called Churchill, and my vassals will worship me. Yes. Exactly. And so it all blew up. And if it weren't for the existence of an American patriotic tradition at that specific moment in time, there would not have been really much of a, of a solution. There's no, there was no alternative to this disaster. It would have been one type of fascism or another. Now, ironically, maybe not ironically, but lawfully, but yeah, it is ironic. The, those who took down people like um, Sir Oswald Mosley, who was the head of the British Union of Fascists, who was very, I mean, very quickly gaining steam and power during the course of the 1930s. 
he was calling also for a greater Europe, a European Union configuration under a nominally um, nationalist set of governments. But the whole thing was, why are you supporting um, a European Union throughout the 1930s and then doing it again in the 1940s, saying we need a um, uh, European nation was the name of his, his book and the name of his gospel. Why is an, a rabid fascist nationalist calling for a European nation, an integration of all of Europe? Why? It's because it was never about creating a better economic base of cooperation. It was always about getting the European nations into a cage that could make them better controllable. And the fact that Oswald Mosley was going to do that, and here's the irony, that the people who chose within the British governing class to oust Oswald Mosley, I'm going to write a, an essay on this. My wife is do doing something similar for her new book. These were people who were running the roundtable movement who didn't want to be junior partners to the Nazi-run New World Order. They wanted to be the ones in control and have the Nazis and the other fascists being their strongmen enforcers. And so this includes people like Leo Amory, one of the key figures who was a supporter of the pan-European fascist movement, who I spoke about when we took a few shots at the, the controlled opposition that is Steve Bannon and the Habsburg Empire a few weeks back. People didn't. A, a lot of people liked it. A lot of people didn't like that. They freaked out. But the point is, if you look at what is the... Um, the operation, it was to create, back in 1919, a, a twofold false opposition between, on the one hand, as a response to World War I, the League of Nations, as being uh, a, 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 a post-nation-state system of governance. People like H.G. Wells, Bertrand Russell, who were against the nation-state system per se, were all the internationalists. And that, that would um, absorb all of those groups. And then the other false choice was, okay, in 1922, you had Count Kalergi von Kudenhoff, um, you had Otto von Habsburg later on manage this thing, all of the, the carryovers from the leading black nobility families who were nominally pro-nationalist and were fascist, people like Hjalmar Schacht, people like Benito Mussolini, um, many, many others. It's a, it's a long list. They were the ones who were then absorbed back into the uh, pan-European movement of Kalergi, again, 1922. So you had two internationalisms, one with a nominally nationalistic veneer for fascists back in that was being sold. And the other one was like post nation state fascism, but it's ultimately still fascism. So when you look at Leo Amory throughout the thirties and forties, and even after world war II, he became along with Churchill, who he installed. He was again, Leo Amory was the head of the round table movement at this time after Leo, uh, Lord Alfred Milner dies. And this is the, the mothership of the mothership. This is the head of the Council on Foreign Relations, Chatham House. Leo Amory is the guy who spearheaded the ouster of the, the Nazi king in 36, creating you know a little bit of a scandal. He's the one who also initiated the ouster of Neville Chamberlain and brought in Churchill. Churchill and Leo Amory are both known as the founding fathers of the European, move, uh, European Union after World War II. Churchill himself called for a United States of Europe. So was Oswald Mosley, who they put in prison. So even though Oswald Mosley was put in prison throughout World War II, he's also pushing the exact same policy. And so it, it's a bit of a, a psyop that was created, giving artificial image to the idea that you had, you know, Churchill was this anti-fascist. He wasn't. He was always for a church of the global British Empire. That's what he was always for. He was always for global population reduction, killing off Indians, the the useless eaters. So was Leo Amory. So was, um, I mean, 
and and ultimately this is what was behind the reorganizing of eugenics in the 21st century or the 20th century after world war two uh, and beyond under the form of environmentalism this is what prince bernhard and philip together prince bernhard of holland was assigned to create with the bilderberger group in 1954 which then reorganized and cr well created and then really amped up the world economic forum which bernhard sponsored in 1973 when they created the davos manifesto that was prince bernhard as the sole patron or at least the primary patron of the 1973 davos that also brought in the club of rome's aurelio pitche for the first time onto that platform under klaus schwab who was a, a kissinger stooge to unveil the new way that we will organize human systems including population limits under computer modeling computer models of the limits to growth ilk that's what was brought online in 1972-73 under prince bernhard at his patronage and the whole idea of stakeholder capitalism all this stuff came from the davos manifesto of 73 which was a bilderberger creation it wasn't really the world economic forum that's a junior to a junior partner of this globalist operation but it's all being run by these inbred um oligarchs right uh prince philip being one of the key guys who organized with julian huxley the founder of the international union for conservation of nature julian huxley the president of the eugenic society him and again brother of aldous who's all this is assigned to do cultural warfare in another way on the on the minds and souls of a target audience whereas julian is more on the science level but they're working together um all this is not giving warnings he's doing predictive programming for anybody confused about that um but julian bernhardt and prince philip together as a trio found in 1961 the world wildlife fund this is what charles is in charge of he's the president of the uk world wildlife fund or has been for many many years and Prince Charles Philip was before that. And what a weapon the World Wildlife Fund was. Using the guise of conservation and protecting endangered species, they were able to strip land rights from so many different populations and leave that for themselves. It's incredible. Yeah. The confiscation tool. So here's the thing. I, I think that we have just a, about 13, 14 minutes left to go. And I, I think one thing we could do is knowing that there's this entire dystopic neo-feudalism or techno-transhumanist feudalism ideology, which is governing the attempted um, reset of civilization and the undoing of all of the traditions that go back thousands of years. They want to just reset the video game. The thing that is really freaking them out and the reason why they're in a hectic state of trying to backstab each other and come out with a bigger piece of the, the collapsing pie or like, you know, this, What's what's going on is that, again, I mentioned Glaziev, I mentioned the Eurasian um, partnership, which has resisted the depopulation agenda. And I just sent, yeah, CJ's pulled up a wonderful speech that I just watched. I wrote a little article um, on Glaziev's relationship to Lyndon LaRouche. And I think this is such a vital thing because the one of the key figures in the past 50 years who's come out in opposition to this thing has been um, the late economist Lyndon LaRouche, who ran for the presidency eight times. I've got a picture of uh, one of his discoveries or, or one of the images describing how his discovery was able to function in terms of his ability to make long-term economic forecasts where other economists failed because they were only looking at monetary trends and not looking at reality. That's it right there. That's the Glaziev is going to talk about this in his 13-minute memorial to LaRouche on his 100th birthday that happened a few days ago. And that is something LaRouche circulated in, in the 90s. We're going to look back again at that triple curve. So let's just stop and just listen to Glaziev. I think this memorial is great. 
and uh, and think about the fact that Glaziev is the guy who is primarily in charge as a grand strategist in charge of the minister. He's a minister of Eurasian Economic Union Affairs. He's in playing a major role in creating the Yuan Eurasian Economic Union, um, or not the Yuan, but the China Belt and Road Initiative Eurasian Economic Union integration and the foundation of a new economic system premised around a basket of commodities that are at the heart of a um, new type of currency that are that's not based on the U.S. dollar, but rather a multitude of um, of currencies from the yuan, the rupee, the rupee, and other things that is tied itself to large-scale anti-Malthusian population growth infrastructure science technology. So that's Glaziev. He's he's walked the walk. So let's listen to his remarks on the Rush and a bit of history and uh, maybe make some comments and we can close up. This year, progressive people around the world are observing the centenary of the birth of the brilliant thinker, and I wouldn't hesitate to say prophet of our time, Lyndon LaRouche. Unfortunately, we no longer can converse with him, and it's a pity he did not live to see the day when his warnings about the crash of the world financial system came to pass. Already 30 years ago, and perhaps even earlier, Lyndon LaRouche drew attention to the fact that the inflation of financial bubbles, including derivatives bubbles, and the creation of financial pyramid schemes would inevitably bring about the collapse of the world financial system. And he proposed to adopt timely measures to avert that collapse. If the leaders of the world's nations had listened to the voice of Lyndon LaRouche, then perhaps we might have managed to avoid the social upheavals we confront today as a result of the collapse of the world financial and economic system, which is based on unlimited emission of the dollar and other Western Reserve currencies. These financial bubbles are not getting any smaller. We have seen that attempts to clean them up end in the inflation of new bubbles. Even the crash of 2008, which erased tens of trillions of dollars of people's savings, including pension funds, did not prevent financial bubbles from bloating up again as a result of the limitless emission of the world reserve currencies using the device of so-called quantitative easing. Lyndon LaRouche proposed a mutual cancellation of these debts, observing the principle of fairness and effectiveness. In effect, what we see now is that the emitters of the world reserve currencies are simply refusing to fulfill their responsibilities. It could have been anticipated that if countries which took the path of pumping up financial bubbles, abusing their monopoly on the right to issue a world currency, ran into a situation where the scale of these financial pyramids greatly exceeded the country's ability to service them, the question would inevitably arise of how to repudiate these debts, simply declare bankruptcy before the whole world, or come up with some other ways to write off their obligations, repudiate them. 
The United States, Great Britain, the European Union, and Japan have taken that second route. They unilaterally seized and blocked Russia's foreign currency-denominated reserves. That means they are refusing to fulfill their obligations to Russia. Russia invested, that is, extended a credit to these countries in the amount of more than $400 billion. That's the state sector component and the government's own, our foreign currency reserves, plus another approximately $1 trillion belonging to private parties is located in jurisdictions of the Western emitters of world reserve currencies. The attempts to block these funds essentially means a default, but a default on what is owed to one of their creditors. In the past, we used to call this piracy or robbery. Of course, these extraordinary measures, which are totally against international law and violate every conceivable rule of decency, as well as the standards of the World Trade Organization and the International Monetary Fund, can be challenged in court. But on the one hand, this would run into the national will of the emitter country, which may be that of a pirate or a bandit, as we are witnessing right now. On the other hand, their action won't save the system. Because even if the USA and its European allies refuse to fulfill their obligations to Russia, that is only a small percentage of the financial obligations the world reserve currency emitters have to the entire world and their own domestic markets. So the world is plunging into chaos in precise accordance with the scenario, the negative scenario, that Lyndon LaRouche spoke about in forecasts he made 30 or 40 years ago. Back then, he proposed that instead of pumping up financial bubbles, the world reserve currency emitter countries, together with their partners and other countries, should invest in building global infrastructure which would reduce the cost of trade, increase the efficiency of international economic ties, and overall contribute to raising connectivity worldwide. So he viewed the process of globalization as a process of expanding cooperation among countries rather than attempts by some countries to exploit others. As for the liberal globalization that today is leading to the collapse of the world financial system, LaRouche criticized it. He proposed a different model of globalization based on the principles of physical economy, in particular, the famous project, which he and his wife, Helga Zepp-Larouche, put forward for international discussion, the so-called Eurasian Bridge. This is a splendid and interesting project, which now, after many years, has begun to be implemented through the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative which we support through linking it with the Eurasian Economic Union. Lyndon LaRouche looked decades ahead. He warned the USA and its partners about the inevitable collapse of their financial expansion policy, under which the interests of speculators eclipse the national interest and the development of the economy. За это мировые спекулянты, вообще мировая олигархия, 
The global speculators and world oligarchy, which are parasites on the monetary emission of world currencies, greatly disliked LaRouche for this. He was persecuted and faced with imprisonment. He ran for the U.S. presidency several times, and if Lyndon LaRouche had been elected president, the world today would be developing in a stable fashion. There would not be the growing chaos, there would not be the worldwide wars and provocations, which the global oligarchy does in order to write off its debts. There is a Russian proverb, war writes everything off. In order to write off its debts to Russia as well as to Europe, Washington provoked the war in Ukraine and continues to deepen the confrontation. Things have reached the point where Washington's agents of influence are shelling a nuclear power plant to raise the temperature of the conflict and create the basis for a clash between Russia and all of NATO, NATO aggression against Russia. The present nightmarish moment, with the breakdown of the entire system of international law and of international cooperation, the collapse of the financial system, could have been avoided if the Democratic Party organization had supported LaRouche as their presidential candidate many years ago. But unfortunately, history does not recognize the subjunctive mood or, as we tend to put it, no one is a prophet in his own country. LaRouche's voice was heard very well. We remember him. In practically all the major countries in the world that today are developing successfully, above all India and China, there are partisans of LaRouche. They have used his thoughts and ideas for creating their economic miracles. It is the principles of physical economy championed by LaRouche that today underlie the Chinese economic miracle and are there in the foundations of India's economic development policy. The supporters of LaRouche in those countries exert a fruitful, very positive and constructive influence on economic policy shaping in these leading nations of the new world economic paradigm. We should not forget the creative legacy of Lyndon LaRouche, which demonstrates the interconnection of events taking place today with their roots many centuries ago. I was always impressed by Lyndon LaRouche's enormous erudition. He saw the parasitical global oligarchy from its origins and traced how those oligarchical families were parasites on trade, first in Venice, then they resettled and continued to build up their financial power through international trade and global speculation in Holland. Then they relocated to England and after that seized control of the political system of the United States. Lyndon LaRouche saw the totality of world history through the prism of the struggle between the good, national interests, the interests of improving the general welfare, and the forces of evil, the world financial oligarchy which hinders countries' development, which strives to extract speculative super profits from trade and economic cooperation, and which deceives the entire world by inflating speculative bubbles and abuses its positions of power in the countries where it dominates the political system.
we see how today's U.S. financial oligarchy is unleashing hybrid world war up to and including the risk of a nuclear catastrophe for the purpose of holding on to its global hegemony. Lyndon LaRouche's warnings are coming to pass. It is important that these warnings are not abstract. They are not simply lines on a graph. I remember the famous triple curve, where he showed the growing gap between the size of the world real economy and the size of the world financial system. He was the first to make note of this disproportion, which 30 years ago was still not so big. It could still have been overcome by transforming the excess financial aggregates into the real sector, into real investment projects. Now, this is a gigantic abyss. It is impossible today to transform quadrillions of dollars of financial bubbles into investments in the real sector of the economy. There are simply no mechanisms for this. None was created because the parasitical financial oligarchy, which hated LaRoche, which always tried to shut his mouth and persecuted him and tried to keep him locked up, ultimately acquired a monopoly on political power in the United States. And today, it uses its political influence in Washington to force all the countries in the world to obey its will. It continues to dominate the world and exert its hegemony for extracting super profits from speculative operations. Lyndon LaRouche turned out to be right. Today, we rely on his work, his writings, in composing proposals for a very rapid transition to a new world economic paradigm. We call it an integrated world economic model in which finance capital will be subordinated to the tasks of developing the economy and in which the principles of physical economy will come to fruition. As we can see, countries that are taking this path are enjoying success. There is no doubt that the ruling American financial oligarchy is losing the hybrid world war, which they have started against all mankind. It's only regrettable that the price that has to be paid for this will be very high. That includes the lives being lost as a result of the war that the American and European financial oligarchy organized against Russia on the territory of Ukraine. We have to muster all our forces to fight that evil, and the creative legacy of Lyndon LaRouche helps in this. Financial oligarchy organized against Russia. Okay, so I wanted really just that to be it. First, I was thinking, yeah, we're going to stop and comment, and I was like, no, let's have that as one unbroken thought, uh, gestalt, as they as they say in Germany. Um, but this this is like we have just been privy to the type of quality of discussion that's been going on in high level, grand strategic corners of Eurasia for the past decades. Yeah, um, that's really important that we just were brought into because a lot of people can't understand how is it that there is actual viable opposition today in this world of corruption to the entire World Economic Forum, Bilderberg, deep state, transhumanist insanity. How is there a viable network of nations and civilizational forces working on a strategy which works? <coughs> that's, how, that's one of the key reasons. It's not just LaRouche, but the fact that the LaRouche card has been played. And this guy has been for those who don't know, I mean, he died in, in 19, uh, 2019 at the age of, of 96. But he was the presidency eight times, including one of those times while he was in prison, because he was in prison for five years. The FBI under Robert Mueller 
Yep. Run. Um, people like, like Henry Kissinger to shut down LaRouche's entire political movement when it was gaining international traction and LaRouche was being invited in the 1970s and 80s to go to Mexico to set up um, strategies for Lopez Portillo, the president of Mexico, uh, to go to India and meet with Indira Gandhi and leading intellectuals of India to organize a strategy for India, to go to China as well, and as also run candidates for U.S. Congress um, inside of the state levels, which were actually winning by the 1986 period. There were actual members who were winning outside of the, uh, the establishment, which is why the, the, the Democratic Party itself, which is what they were nominally running under, sabotaged their own uh, chances of victory in key states, especially in Illinois, giving the victory over to the Republicans just to keep the, the Rouge Democrats from having any type of position of power. And at that point, it was too much in this entire FBI onslaught. Uh, to create a kangaroo court case uh, destroying La- uh, where they wanted to destroy LaRouche and kill him in prison uh, was put under into play. Same figures who ran the operation against Trump under Robert Mueller for, for four years. Same thing, exactly. So Glaziev met with LaRouche in the 90s when LaRouche was released from prison and spent many, many journeys in Russia, meeting, speaking to the Duma, speaking to the Academies of Sciences in Russia, meeting with Glaziev, who's a member of the Academy of Science, um, this is the force. These are the forces. Glaziev is the, one of the only guys who was a member of the Yeltsin cabinet. The only member who quit. He resigned in protest, seeing that he was being put into, tr- he was being expected to destroy his own nation under, under Yeltsin. And he said, I'm, I'm going to resign. And he gave up a lot of power out of principles and did it several times over throughout the 1990s. And it was only when Putin was brought into play and, and Yeltsin, the alcoholic time bomb was removed. Uh, by a, a, a small but but important nationalist grouping around Primakov, that there was a chance for Russia to actually be uh, saved. And Glaziev since then has been working as sort of a conscience figure, but also a real political player. And met and and I mean, this guy has been a mover and a shaker for the last 24 years in Russian politics. And uh, the fact that this guy has brought LaRouche's program, and he spoke it. You know, he had a dialogue with LaRouche in 2001, which is on YouTube. It's going to be in my new article on uh, strategic culture. Um, He's been making it very clear where the ideas and principles of physical economy and the idea of of, of how creativity and the leaping above limits to growth is the precondition for the survival morally and physically of any society that is fit to exist and not collapse. It is premised around doing the opposite of what Charles, Philip, Bernhard, and the entire system of black nobility have always been been devoted to, which is keeping humanity in an uncreative state, in a in a in a ever diminishing world of a closed system uh, cage, which would justify their own culling in order to to better manage the human herd under a Malthusian sort of uh, logic. This is what is the very opposite of the law of nature, the law that was understood by Ben Franklin, one of the most creative beings of the <laughs> the last thousand years who made revolutions in science as well as political economy um, and created a system very much similar to what LaRouche has been doing as a grand strategist, working on so many levels. Uh, That's what Ben Franklin was doing by creating a movement that would live beyond his lifetime and that would be put into motion in Russia. I mean, he he was the first American member of the Russian Academy of Sciences. He's the one who organized Russia as well as France, as well as India to work with the American rebels with the hope that there would be leadership capable of carrying forth his concept of 
the inalienable rights of mankind as being a creature made in the image of God, not just having one special hereditary family that would define a new age of reason and brotherhood. That unfortunately was subverted by the British Empire's subjugation of India, then of China, and also their own growth of a U.S. deep state that killed some of the best people in U.S. history, presidents as well as Hamilton early on. But this whole thing has been, a, that, that is the structure of the, the, the thing that is shaping the past thousands of years of human history is what is being invoked right now. And um, I think people just need to really read the, the writings of LaRouche if people have been turned off because I include myself early on. I thought that LaRouche was, um, you know, I believe the slanders on Wikipedia and, and there's been a lot of gossip and, and controversy that's been cooked up by the forces of evil to, to basically have us ignore the ideas of this guy LaRouche who have so influenced the greatest strategists currently in play in China, India, South America, big time Russia, as we see. Um, and this is what gives the oligarchy nightmares at night is the possibility that this category of ideas might be revived now at this moment of, of, of potential. So that's the best chance we've got. And anything inside of the United States that could be fit to survive has to rekindle that, that basic set of principles of physical economy. And uh, we don't have a lot of time. So we have to learn these lessons now. And I'm, I'm, I'm speaking also to the Commonwealth countries that don't want to freeze to death and starve to death under this Great Reset uh, ideology. You, you also, we, we here in the Commonwealth countries, I'm talking now to my Commonwealth brethren, we have to also see that this is what, you know, is in our traditions too. We, we had great people in Canada. There were great people who were assassinated in Australia there were even in Britain great, great humanists who fought against this Malthusian class, going back to Thomas More and Erasmus. And this was what we we have to find a way to re rekindle that because Charles is a dupe, he's a fool, but he's also religiously committed to a policy that wants to kill us. So that that's got to be held in mind. And a crazy PM that's not afraid to use nuclear weapons. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's because nuclear weapons are far less dangerous than cow flatulence, Mafia. <laughs> yeah. This is the reason why. And I think by reformatting the carbon dioxide, I can have normal hands instead of sausage fingers. Maybe. <laughs> I don't have long to have to have hands that look like shepherd's pie. It's weird, eh? Like with all of the the uh, the medical technology that I'm sure is not available to your average plebe. That is that is what kept people like Philip alive till '99, even though I, you know, his body joined his soul, uh, which had died a lot earlier. But the fact that they're able to keep these creeps alive so long, dude, I'm sure involves a lot of technologies and medicine that we don't know about. But they can't fix his weird messed up hand no, no, <laughs> like no. what just that's weird it's a it's a strange thing yeah it, you know and it just goes to show it's like you know there these people are mentally emotionally physically absolutely unhealthy and they yeah. are stunted they do not deserve to be in any position of leadership whatsoever and it's no. a tragedy and a travesty that people think these people are smart, educated, and are of the cap capability and capacity to lead. It, ne it needs to stop, and people need to wake up. And what? Uh, and it, it makes my head explode. Like pe I'm, I'm watching American media just fawn and swoon over the Queen's death. I'm like, who cares? You know? Yeah, real man. 
Sunday. Yeah. Well, I you know that this is also like for those who think that the the royals and the oligarchy, the inner elites have like secret knowledge known only to the inner elites, because a lot of people do believe that, and they, they do believe that they actually know about you know that they're using quantum. I've, I've encountered, I've had a lot of debates with people on this point who are really good intentioned people, but I think that they've they've given too much uh, credit to the um, this inbred class who, I mean, they believe or many people believe that they actually have a singularity point that they're able to, to foresee, which will allow yeah. them to merge with machines yeah. and upload their souls to avoid death yes. and have immortality and Correct. enslave everybody with little microbots that control your mind and emotions that's already here. And, and there's so many levels and facets to this, these theories. The fact is they can't even fix an overbloated hand of a, of a puppet inbred yeah, uh, want to you know king? Yeah, they and, they. Like, here's the thing: it, it, it's like it, it's they allow the the internet conspiracies to run wild because it makes them look so invincible. Like they're yeah. they're godlike, and yeah. uh, you know what happens is like a lot of people in the old media, and I've you know I, you know much respect Alex Jones, and I I love the uh, entertainment and the domestic information that he brings to the table. But internationally, he's like a a, a preschool kid in understanding international politics. These guys read the problem with old media is they read the white papers that these jokers write, and then they think the white paper is actually real. They literally yeah. believe, well, you know, uh, such and such. Uh, she told me that there was a breakaway civilization and a secret space program. There already is a colony on Mars. No, there isn't. The morons cannot do anything correct. It's really not that simple. And when you follow the money, you break down what they're actually doing, not what they're writing in a white paper, which is vaporware, right? Mm-hmm. But what's actually being accomplished, you you see, these are not, you know, godlike beings, but they're idiot inbred psychopaths. Yeah, that's and, what they are, and they believe their own um, bullshit. Their own bullshit, exactly. Yeah. And, and I mean, society is organized. Maybe we talk about this next week a bit more. But I mean, society is organized around myth making, myths, and um, that's all of human history. Whether you're looking at religious text, whether you're looking at um, works of of fiction that endure beyond particular generations, right? Not just like a Harlequin romance, but there's some works of fiction that really endure. Um, some of the the stories that shape the the archetypes that shape the zeitgeist have value because they're the 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 composers of these stories, religious as well as fictional and otherwise. Even music, you could say, is a form of this. Um, have a love they actually are seeing their art as being something in their their use of metaphor their use of the story of the imagery of the allegories as being something which taps human beings into that more divine immortal part of themselves that make them unwieldy and unwilling to adapt to a system of controlled injustice which is good it taps us ever more into the creator and gives us greater access to our reason instead of being talking cows and then other types of myth making um are designed to do the opposite, to to keep us more enslaved to our emotional, our unmanaged emotions, our undisciplined emotions that then shape the behavior of what we think our identities and our minds are capable of doing, right? And that turn, turn us into more romantic fantasy states of idiots that are ever more sucked into the cave and incapable of accessing that type of proper creativity that we're endowed with by the creator. So you got these two different types of, of um, myth myths that are deployed and the unfortunate thing with the oligarchy 
uh, or maybe fortunate in, in, if you're thinking about this and from the standpoint of a humanist who actually wants to defeat them, is that they always end up over the course of a few generations believing the myths that they assign to their victims, their kids or grandkids end up increasingly believing those myths. Whether it's the Masonic occult stories they tell for themselves about having communion with, you know, um, Lucifer and, and other things and all of the yeah. ritualistic shenanigans that they come up with as parts of their it's their religion. It, it, it's that's their thing. You know, it's what keeps and, and them maybe, in check in their club. That's but that's all it is. And and maybe the ones who originally were the grand strategists are like creating these things didn't believe it. But the fact is that within a few generations, they always end up just drinking the Kool Aid, and their kids or grandkids end up actually believing a lot of this stuff, and then yeah. they lose their own ability to be uh, grand masters in any type of great game. They end up becoming increasingly duped uh, themselves. So that's, in a sense, a positive thing that people like Glaziev or anybody with a little bit of a, a love of humanity and a despise, if you despise the system of oligarchism and want to finally have a humanity healed from this, um, ah, this parasite. Cancer. That's, it's a useful thing to keep that in mind. They, they do what every mafia drug lord knows you shouldn't do, which is consume your own product. They consume their own product. Exactly. That's exactly right, and 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 then people on 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 the lower run rung, uh, you know, starts believing their own that these people are actually writing truth, you well, know, yeah. with all their nonsense. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. Anyway, folks, we're at the end of the show. Matthew Errett, the man, the myth, the legend, folks. If you have not done so already, get over to the CanadianPatriot.org, CanadianPatriot.org. As well as the Rising Tide Foundation.net, Rising Tide Foundation.net, Matthew Eretz Substack, Cynthia Chung Substack, and get his two books. Damn it. The Unfinished Symphony, Volume One, The Class of Two Americas, Volume One and Volume Two. Get it. I think Volume Three is already out as well. Get it. Yep. It is important for your library in order for you to understand these maniacal maniacs, know where we are, where we need to go as a human species. Check it out. CanadianPatriot.org, RisingTideFoundation.net, the Substack, and get the books. Mm -hmm. This is the gorilla. He is our northern Canadian ally. And that's El Cuco. We're over and out. <laughs>